Hello everyone, and thank you once again for listening to the saga of World War II, a Cassus Belly project. As always, I encourage you all to contact me at cassusbellyguy at gmail.com with any corrections or comments you might have. If you would like to support the show financially, you can go to patreon.com slash cassusbellypodcasts and join at the $3 a month member tier, or more if you would like. You can also visit cassusbellypodcast.com to get a little bit of extra information on the context of each show. In this episode, we continue the Battle of Guadalcanal, but also discuss the New Guinea campaign and the Greater Eastern Solomons campaign. We are now so close to finishing Guadalcanal. I think there should be one more episode that covers it, but we are close to shifting our focus to the European theater once again. But for now, let's begin episode 29, Thermopylae on Matanikau. Ah, have been astonished that Japan should in a single day have plunged into war against the United States and the British Empire. What kind of a people do they think we are? Is it possible they do not realize that we shall never cease to persevere against them until they have been taught a lesson which they and the world will never forget? As the battle for Guadalcanal raged, another, equally ferocious battle was taking place about 800 miles to the west on the island of New Guinea. The marines had been tasked with taking Guadalcanal to begin the climb up the Solomon's chain, but the army had been tasked with securing the northern coast of New Guinea. When the Japanese landed at the village of Buna on the northeastern coast of New Guinea on July 21, 1942, the battle for Guadalcanal was still three weeks away, and American troops wouldn't arrive on the world's second largest island for months to come. For now, the Australians were manning the guns. As is always the case in the Pacific Theater, 800 miles was essentially right next door. But, to give a sense of scale, New Guinea is an absolutely massive island. The modern state of Papua New Guinea, which is only the eastern half of the island where the New Guinea campaign took place, is about the size of Germany. The eastern tail of the island, which the Kokoda Trail crosses, is about the size of Florida or the former Czechoslovakia. Except, unlike Florida, the spine of the tail isn't flat, but made up of the Owen Stanley Range, a punishingly steep and high mountain range covered in jungle and fog. The mountains and the weather would turn out to be just as formidable foes to the Japanese and Australians as they were to each other. The Japanese had actually been on the island since March of 1942, when they landed unopposed at Leh and Salamoa. There, they began consolidating themselves and supply caches for the coming campaign. They also began constructing airfields to provide themselves with air support. They were also waiting for the fleet to deliver an invasion force at Port Moresby. They did not expect to be the main effort for the capture of the southern coast and the main city there. This, of course, was disrupted by the Battle of the Coral Sea, which we discussed in episode 25. With the invasion fleet repulsed, the Japanese now had no option but to advance over the tail of New Guinea and began making preparations. As their presence increased, so too did that of the Australians, who could guess what the Japanese were up to. Australian commandos began harassing the Japanese perimeter and company-sized elements, and in April, two more Australian infantry brigades arrived at Port Moresby. Another Australian brigade 
was sent to the Milna Bay, on the eastern tip of the tail, and two battalions were pushed over the hump of the Owen Stanley Range to occupy defensive positions at Buna on the north coast and begin construction of an airfield. The Japanese detected these movements, and so dispatched a small landing force to Buna on July 21st, beginning the New Guinea campaign proper. It was faster for the Japanese to sail to Buna than it was for the Australians to march the 100 miles across the peninsula, so they beat the Australians there. Initially, 2,000 troops were landed, but they were followed by the rest of the 17th Army's 13,500 men under General Hyakutake, who marched down from Salamoa, brushing aside the Australian commando companies as they went. By July 27th, advanced Japanese units had reached Kokoda in the highlands, halfway across the tail of New Guinea. As the Australians were maneuvering, trying to save Port Moresby from capture, General MacArthur was making maneuvers of his own. On the day the Japanese landed at Buna, he shifted his headquarters from Melbourne to Brisbane, right on the Coral Sea, to be closer to the action. Within days of arriving, he was appalled and amazed by the speed of the Japanese advance. He had some hope reserved, though. The 50 miles of the Kokoda Trail were relatively light and easy. It was the second leg, from Kokoda to Port Moresby, that was the difficult part. The last 50 miles would require the Japanese to ascend to 13,000 feet on foot over jagged, steep mountains covered with thick rainforest. The frequent rainfall created deep gorges and fast-flowing rivulets. The Kokoda Trail itself was exactly that, a trail. In places, it was wide enough for only a single man to pass, and in no place was it what anyone could call a road. Maybe a nice path in some places, but the bottom line was that everything would have to be carried by hand or by pack animals. Unfortunately, the Australians were completely unaccustomed or acclimated to such an environment. To solve this problem, they employed thousands of local Papuans as porters. These people had lived on the island for literally thousands of generations, their populations being some of the oldest continuous inhabitants of any place on earth. Australian Aborigines are descended from them. The Papuans' task was monumental, but they shouldered it heroically. In conditions where the Australian troops could hardly get themselves and their rifles up the mountain trails, they humped supplies of all kinds, everything from food to ammunition to medical supplies. It was the nearly insurmountable conditions of the Kokoda Trail that caused the Japanese to halt what had been a lightning advance until they reached the village of Kokoda itself. When they arrived there, they not only had to figure out how to continue their advance up the slopes of the mountains, but also how to deal with the now severely stretched supply lines. They had to rely on a 100-mile-long chain reaching back to Salomoa. The Australians, in the defense, were in much better shape. Their lines only ran about 30 miles back from their positions. In an attempt to improve their overall position, the Japanese landed 2,000 men at Milna Bay on August 25th in the pouring tropical rain, believing there was only a small Australian garrison of maybe 300 men. Of course, their intelligence was way off because almost two full infantry brigades held the town with all of their accompanying artillery as well as two fighter squadrons. Despite their disadvantage in numbers, the Japanese pressed the attack and managed to reach the edge of the airfield, but were eventually driven back. On September 6th, with their dead and wounded piling up, they gave up the fight and evacuated. Back on the main route over the tail, the Australians were being driven back and MacArthur had to make plans to divert American troops to the island. He had intended to simply let the Australians handle it so he could land Americans on New Britain to take the operationally significant airfield and port. Events on Guadalcanal would lead to relief for the Australians. After the Battle of Bloody Ridge, 
The Japanese became focused on Guadalcanal, and the Japanese advance along the Kokoda Trail was halted, then reversed. General Hori, commander of troops on New Guinea, was ordered to withdraw the bulk of his force all the way back to Buna out of fears that the Americans would land there and surround the Japanese troops at Kokoda. This prompted the Australians to go on the offensive. On November 2nd, the Australians took Kokoda and were quickly on the Japanese heels as they withdrew to Buna. But with Japanese forces making gains, he had to reconsider. If General Hitoke managed to take Port Moresby, he would only be 300 miles from the Australian mainland. By mid-September, the Japanese had pushed forward along the Golden Stairs, made from felled trees, stakes, and mud, which could change in altitude by 1,200 feet in only three miles, and reached Amita Ridge, the last real natural obstacle before Port Moresby itself. Things had gotten so bad that someone had told Nimitz that New Guinea was gone. The American officers in the theater unfairly blamed these setbacks on the Australian soldiers' lack of fighting spirit, or some such nonsense, when in reality, they were fighting in unbearable conditions, without the kind of heavy support in the form of air superiority, naval gunfire, and heavy artillery that the Americans were accustomed to. General Hori was killed in the retreat, and massive stockpiles were captured, and the remaining Japanese force was forced to retire to the villages of Buna, Gona, and Sananada. The task was now to take these three objectives. Sanananda and Gona were to be captured by the Australians, and the last, Buna, was given to the American 32nd Infantry Division, the first U.S. Army unit to enter the fray on New Guinea. A seaward invasion of Buna was ruled out by MacArthur's theater vice commander, Admiral Arthur Carpenter, due to hazardous shoals, a lack of available landing craft, and plentiful Japanese air cover. Thus, the assault had to be made overland, through dense jungle and very few avenues of approach, with the Japanese fortified. They constructed a network of well-concealed bunkers, each composed of a minimum of felled logs and timbers, but many strengthened with poured concrete and even armor. They did pretty much what the Marines did on Guadalcanal in terms of covering them with earth to make them appear to be little more than overgrown lumps until they began spitting out hot lead. Each bunker's field of fire covered another bunker, so that all of their fields of fire interlocked, denying any open flank to the approaching allies. On November 19th, General Harding of the 32nd U.S. Infantry Division began his attack on this fortress in miniature with little more than light infantry. They were mowed down by Japanese machine gun fire. On the 21st, they again attempted to storm the Japanese defenses around Buna and were again repulsed. Anyone should have been able to predict this outcome. Harding had no tanks nor flamethrowers and had surrendered three battalions to assist the Australians in taking their objectives. MacArthur ordered the 32nd forward again despite all of this, and the 32nd took a beating once again. MacArthur sent his own staff down to the 32nd Division to find out what was happening, and sent back the conclusions that MacArthur had predetermined. That Harding's poor leadership and lack of fighting spirit resulted in defeat, completely ignoring the fact that Harding had pleaded for tanks and artillery. So General Eichenberger was sent to replace him, and MacArthur told him, Go out there, Bob, and take Buna, or don't come back alive. By the end of January 1943, the Japanese position at Buna had collapsed. The campaign had cost the Japanese 12,000 men, the Australians 5,700, and the American 2,800, though those numbers only reflected battle casualties. Many more were stricken by tropical disease and exhaustion. What really won the Allies the day was air cover, shorter logistics routes, and events on Guadalcanal. As the tide turned in the eastern Solomons, Japanese leadership turned their attention there and stopped supporting the New Guinea campaign.
In late October of 1942, General Hyakutake was ordering General Moriyama to commence another offensive with the Sendai Division on Guadalcanal. General Moriyama had instructed his engineers to begin cutting a road through the jungle to get from his supply dumps in the rear to the front and to allow large formations to march through it. The going was good until they reached a labyrinth of cliffs and ridges deep in the jungle. Here, the path narrowed to a mere trail and handholds had to be cut in the rock for the men to pass. Large supplies and field guns had to be heaved over the ridges with ropes and pulleys. However, this forced the Japanese to leave many of their field guns behind, severely weakening their indirect fire support in the coming battle. This was compounded by the fact that the combined fleet was growing impatient. Their ships ran on oil, and their fuel was running low. This slowdown in the Sendai's progress irritated Hyakutake, who at this point had had enough of setbacks and defeats. He wanted Vandegrift's sword, and he wanted it now. Unfortunately for him, the marines, as well as soldiers, were more dug in, more fortified, and better supported with every passing day. They had also recently received batteries of new 5-inch howitzers, nicknamed Long Toms, to answer the Japanese 150mm howitzers. On October 21st, the Japanese attack began with a preparatory artillery bombardment, which was promptly answered by Marine counter-battery fire from their Long Toms. Following that, the Japanese 4th Infantry Regiment attacked along the west bank of the Matanikau River, supported by 11 tanks. They were supposed to have been supported by Colonel Oka's regiment at Nippon Bridge, but he never commenced his attack. Thus, they were swiftly repulsed and General Hakutake told him to begin his attack by October 23rd. It wasn't until 11.30 at night on October 24th that the Japanese actually got it together and launched their main attack on the American perimeter. Again, Chesty Puller's men were right in the thick of it and fought the Japanese as they had learned to do so well in the last weeks and months. They created well-prepared defensive fighting positions, layered razor wire, and sighted their guns. When the Japanese came surging forward, as was their fashion, the Marines mowed them down, as was theirs. The Japanese night attack once again led to disorganization, and their shock tactics failed miserably against American firepower. But, as Stalin was fond of saying, quantity has a quality all its own. And despite falling on razor wire and being blown apart by artillery by the dozens, through sheer numbers, the Japanese managed to make it to the Marines' foxholes. There, the battle once again descended into a maelstrom of flesh, steel, and lead flying in close quarters. But the Marines were prepared for this and maintained their discipline. To make matters worse, the Japanese were walking into a trap of their own creation. Where Colonel Nakagama had attacked on one flank and urged his men forward to victory or death, Colonel Oka attacked where Chesty Puller's battalion defended. Japanese intelligence had collected intelligence from a dead marine that they believed depicted American fighting positions and created their own plan based on it. The map was, in fact, a Japanese map from early August of their own positions that had been copied. Somehow, they did not recognize it and took it as gospel. Where the Japanese believed there was a gap in the line, there was, in fact, an entire battalion, and they paid the price for their mistake. After the first attack was repulsed, a second wave was sent two hours later at 1.30 in the morning, and yet a third at 3.30. All were eventually thrown back after sowing chaos and inflicting casualties. The attack at 3.30 in the morning was unique in that the position was held by soldiers of the 164th Infantry, who were carrying the M1 Garand. This was the first time the semi-automatic rifle fired a shot in anger at the Japanese. As the war went on, the Marines would be outfitted with the weapon as well and the Japanese would become all too familiar with its eight pops and clang.
By dawn, the surviving Japanese were staggering back to their assembly areas, and General Moriyama reported the offensive was, quote-unquote, having difficulty. The Japanese had been fighting the Americans on Guadalcanal for almost three months now, and had seemingly not learned any lessons. Hubris and cultural chauvinism have their price too. The attack on Henderson Field did not halt, though. That day, Sunday, October 25th, 1942, the Japanese pressed their attack by air and sea. The combined fleet lay only 300 miles north and sent repeated sorties to bomb the field and defending soldiers and marines. There were three destroyers, however, racing down the slot to deliver more troops ashore, and they decided to bombard Henderson Field on the way. They had not counted on the Marines' new 5-inch howitzers who returned to their fire and drove them off. Following this, the air arm of the combined fleet struck. They had counted on the Cactus Air Force being grounded from the destroyer bombardment and heavy rains the night before, but they were wrong. Had they struck in the morning, the American aircraft probably would have been grounded, but they waited until afternoon, when there was just enough time to make repairs and dry out the runway and get Wildcat fighters aloft. They battled the Zeeks and bombers and took down two dozen aircraft that day. At sea, the cruiser Yura and the destroyer Akuzuke were both lost. The night of the 25th, the Japanese resumed the land attack. The results were much the same as every other night attack the Japanese had launched. They were still feeling their way through the night. No real concept of a decisive point, no fire and maneuver, just a swarm of thousands, trying in vain to dislodge dug-in hundreds. Again, the Marines punished them with indirect fire, primarily from company and battalion mortars. Untold hundreds of Japanese died in the high-angle hell of mortar fire, and yet more from machine gun fire and the tangled wire, but still, huge numbers were able to get through to the foxholes. Again, the Marines threw together a reserve to repulse them, and in the morning, General Moriyama and Hyakutake had 2,500 fewer men in service of the Emperor. 80 Americans died that night. The Japanese had once more been denied Henderson Field, and now their ground forces were exhausted. The battle for Henderson Field was over. Soon, the Marines would be going on the offensive. Though on land, the Americans certainly looked to be winning the series. Those victories would be a lot less impactful if the Pacific Fleet were to be severely defeated. The Japanese combined fleet lay roughly 300 miles north of Guadalcanal, replete with four carriers, five battleships, 14 cruisers, and 44 destroyers. This was the most dangerous force in the Pacific, and Yamamoto was eager to make up for the defeats at sea and on land. Against him sailed Admiral Thomas Kincaid, with two carriers, the Enterprise and the Hornet, two battleships, nine cruisers, and 24 destroyers. One of those battleships was the mighty South Dakota, however. It was almost brand new and bristling with 40mm anti-aircraft guns, which were obviously becoming more and more important in naval armament. As a force multiplier, South Dakota was commanded by Captain Thomas Gatch, who ran a loose ship. He didn't care for what the Army calls garrison duties, neatly pressed uniforms, tight grooming standards, and all other tasks not relevant to actually fighting. What he cared about most was marksmanship. As long as they could hit their targets and keep the ship underway, he was happy, and his crew loved him for it. This focus on gunnery, especially amongst the AA gunners, would prove to be invaluable in the coming battles. In the small hours of October 26th, Admiral Kincaid's scouts reported sighting enemy vessels 200 miles northwest. Kincaid reported the sighting back to Admiral Halsey in Noumea, and upon reading the message, ordered the fleet to attack. Kincaid had anticipated this, and had instructed the Enterprise to launch a search mission. 
each dauntless, though technically scouting, was armed with a 500-pound bomb to strike targets of opportunity. This non-standard procedure paid off when two dauntless dive bombers found the light cruiser Zuho and severely damaged her. Unfortunately, the Hornet had also been spotted. The Battle of Santa Cruz was about to begin. Now each fleet had a strike group flying toward the other, and something rather awkward happened. They passed each other. Neither side really being able to do much about the other, at least not without abandoning their strike mission, continued on, staring at one another slack-jawed. When the Japanese strike group arrived, the American fleet was ready. Each carrier was protected by a bodyguard of battleships, cruisers, and destroyers, with AA guns oriented toward the skies waiting. Above them was the layer cake of fighters flying cap. At nine in the morning, the Vals found the Hornet and entered into their dives. They were racked with flak and AA fire, but the big billowing cumulus clouds of the South Pacific kept them concealed too long. The gunners weren't able to start firing until they were already well into their attacks. The gunners of the Hornet and her escorts fought valiantly and effectively, downing all but two of the Japanese 27 bombers thrown at them. The Japanese still managed to do devastating damage, however. One bomb landed in the starboard or right side of her flight deck. Another aircraft, crippled, slammed into the smokestack, bounced off of it, and crashed into the flight deck where his two bombs exploded. Finally, the Kate torpedo bombers arrived and conducted their low runs. Two fish struck home and exploded in engineering, causing the ship to lose power. Dead in the water, she was an even easier target. Three more 500-pound bombs exploded in her flight deck, and a flaming Kate torpedo bomber screamed into the forward AA battery. The Hornet was mortally wounded. Taken under tow by a destroyer, she would survive only a few more hours, but was later sunk by a Japanese destroyer after the battle. The Hornet embodied one-third of American carrier power, and it was gone. That's not to say she didn't have anything to show for herself during the battle, though. The 52-plane strike group she launched found the Japanese fleet, and her dive bombers landed half a dozen bombs in the flight deck of the Shokaku. Though they didn't sink her, they neutralized her until she could return home for repairs. They also struck the cruiser Chikuma with two bombs, sending her limping home to safe harbor as well. Through all the carnage dealt thus far, the Enterprise was still afloat as well as Admiral Kondo's two other flat tops, the Junyo and Jukaku. Kondo ordered them to find and sink the Enterprise. They accomplished one of their goals. Though they attacked the Big E, they only inflicted superficial damage and 44 casualties, partly due to the fact that the Enterprise had the veritable floating fortress of South Dakota there to protect her. The Japanese had won a tactical victory, but it was hardly the knockout blow Yamamoto had hoped for. They had to send one light carrier and one fleet carrier back to dock, removing them from the theater until at least mid-1943, and 100 aircraft along with their pilots. The Americans lost the Hornet and 76 aircraft themselves, but in the long run, this was less devastating for them. The Americans were constantly making good on their losses, and most importantly, churning out new, competent pilots. The Japanese, on the other hand, could hardly replace ships lost nor regenerate skilled pilots. So operations in the Southwest Pacific continued as they had since August. The Japanese ferried more troops into Guadalcanal, another 15,000 to arrive by early November to augment the 25,000 they had already committed to the island. General Hakutake was hoping the 38th could succeed where the Sendais had failed, and the Kawaguchis before them. The Americans were sending more marines, soldiers, supplies, and materiel of their own, but for the time being, the 1st Marines and the 164th Infantry had to hold out. 
The Marines on Guadalcanal had all lost 20 pounds each in the 90 days since the battle started, and their willpower was thinning. Every time they fought the Japanese, they pushed them back and chastised them mercilessly, yet they always came back again. They were weary in a way they never thought possible. The unending heat and humidity beat them down as well, as the omnipresent malaria, which just about everyone had, and of course the chronic hunger. But their determination to defeat the Japanese never ebbed. When Vandegrift ordered offensive patrols and operations, the men conducted them gladly and proficiently. In November, the Marines went on the offensive. The 5th Marines struck out to the west, where they killed 200 Japanese in a spoiling attack. Along the Tanaru River, a fierce battle raged in which the 7th Marines, assisted by the 2nd Raider Battalion, utterly annihilated the Japanese 230th Infantry Regiment, killing 1,000 and wounding 2,000 for only 300 casualties of their own, 100 of them being killed in action. Unfortunately, General Vandegrift had to recall his men after those early successes because the Japanese fleet was gathering once again to seek out decisive battle on the high seas. 